Did you guys see the founder of owner, world barista champion? I know. Grape juice in his um in his coffee. Yeah. It was crazy. I was like, what? Grape juice. That's well they always have to do that signature drink at the end. Mm. Which is like meant to be like a martini or, you know, not a coffee basically. So apparently he went all around the world and sourced the beans by like by tracking down which beans would be ready and have sat for the perfect amount of time yeah. to be ready for it's both crazy, yeah. the Australian Championships and the World Championships. Wow. Takes it very seriously. I think he's won the Australian or, or, or won medals or something in the Australian Championships in the past. Yeah, yeah he's definitely done it before. And then last year, well, this year and last year, he's been full-time training. Mm. Wow. But the, it's with good reason, I guess, because the winner, like, and he is the winner, it, of the world know. or the Australian? Yeah, no, he's the yeah. winner of the world no, champion. He's the world, world champion. We've got the world's best barista in Canberra. Yep. He's not going to be in Canberra wow. very long. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> He'll he's be traveling be the world now. Like, all they do once they win is, you know, get sponsored and just get paid Go lots of coffee. money to put their face on coffee machines. And, nice. Yeah. Good for him. Very good. I'll and yeah, we'll totally boost before he goes. sales at owner and cupping room. Like, people will probably travel yeah. now. Yeah. Like, uh, are they the same? People. I didn't realize owner and cupping room were. Yeah. yeah, same people. Owner. Well, same guy. <laughs> Owners of Copy Room. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should do the intro and we could get started. Yeah. Okay. Hi. You are listening to Mobile Couch and this is a show where we talk about development for mobile devices. End of sentence. This show is hosted by Jake McMullen. Hello. And Ben Trengrove. Hello. And myself, Jelly, a.k.a. Daniel Farrelly, who does not sound like Russell. Ivanovich from Topical at all, even slightly. And this is episode 55. I was about to say double digits, but we've been in double digits for a while. <laughs> yeah, just for yeah. a little while. Duplicate digits. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's awesome. So um, last episode was great. I was really happy with last episode. Yeah, me too. Like, the thing I enjoyed was our guest. He was great. So thank you. I learned heaps. Yeah. No, it was, it was I think it was an excellent, like, mm. primer for... Watch kit development definitely, and I was inspired as well. Since we spoke, I've gone and written a glance because was this is this your glance glance is this your glance for your uh, stock (laughs) app quote stock app? It is a glance for my stock app with quotes with quotes. So it is an app that provides timely information information that is pertinent to a particular time. Side note. Stock apps for the Apple Watch seem to be there seem to be a lot of them. I yeah, think it's a great do, idea. Actually. It's a really good idea. Maybe. I was a little worried having spoken to David Smith last time that the architecture I'd been envisaging for my glance, which is the most naive one you can imagine, because that's generally how I develop software. I might be confessing my terrible Confessing your naivety? Yes. But generally <laughs> I just do what seems simple and straightforward first and make it less simple and more complex later if I need to. And ho- I hope that I don't need to. So what's wrong with that? Like developing yeah, a simple app the... and then turning it into a complex app, that's kind of the Excellent. way of Good. the world. Fantastic. Um, so the naive approach I took was just, uh, okay, my um, glance controller is going to ask my service layer, my API client, for the data it needs, basically in view will appear kind of the equivalent. Um, but from listening to David last time, I'm a bit worried about that approach now. I'm a bit think worried that the performance will be too bad, that you'll be you'll flick your wrist up, light up your watch, slide your finger up to display the glance, and then you'll just have to wait. Well supposedly you have to wait anyway. For the glance to go and get its data from the internet and update its display. Mm. But so I did take his um feedback on board and I basically created the UI such that when it first appears, it has everything laid out where it will eventually be laid out with kind of dashes or like symbols to represent empty data. Yep. You know, this bit doesn't have content yet. There will be some here later. Um, And then as soon as it gets some, I populate the UI. Um, And in the simulator, at least, it feels good. Um, But I don't know, you know, what it's going to be like on the actual device, whether the Bluetooth, the time that it takes for the watch to talk to the phone over bluetooth will slow it down so much that it feels clunky but i i also feel in this particular use case the timeliness of the information how up to date it is is kind of 
crucial that people aren't going to be interested in looking at the glance to see information that's a few hours old. They're going to be interested in looking at it to see information that's current as of now. So without kind of substantial changes to the architecture of the whole phone app, I don't know that there's an alternative really. I don't know that there's a good way to pre-get the content ahead of when a user's going to I think you'd have to enable the glance. Do it with a server and do a like push, do push background refresh and Yeah, push when when you know new content is available. Yeah. 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 Or at least I mean if you don't want content that's hours old, I mean if you have content that's updated once per hour, that could be yeah, but I still think you're going to want, like, if you can have stuff that's as of a minute ago. I, I kind of feel like, I guess what I've done is um the naive implementation, the simplest one, going to wait till I get the watch and f- see how it feels. Mm. And um, I'm I'm a bit worried now from having spoken to David last time that perhaps I'd need to add that more complexity of having something to prefetch or cache the data to make it yeah. more responsive. So having read the reviews, so the reviews for the watch all dropped here on Thursday night prior to the launch of the watch right and i read maybe two of them when i say read i looked at the pictures and kind of skimmed the text i read lots of them but the general feeling that i got was that watch apps are kind of slow like the third party stuff is kind of slow yeah mostly because it's got to fetch its data and I, i mean having not actually held one even even now uh I can't say with 100% certainty that that's something that you can kind of get away like get away from completely. I don't, but I feel like maybe... Yeah, I think you can halve it potentially. So, yeah. so there's, I think there's two elements to the delay. There's the watch getting data from the phone via Bluetooth. Yep. So basically you tap on an icon on the watch to launch an app and you see a UI, but it doesn't have any information to populate the UI with real data, asks the phone for the data over Bluetooth. If the phone has the data and can just respond, then it will respond and you'll have whatever that delay is. But if the phone doesn't have the data and it itself then has to go off and get it from the network, then mm. you've kind of got two levels of delay. So, so the, you- the question then is, what is the that first level, level of delay? Like how much delay is there between getting data from the watch to, sorry, from the phone to the watch and just cached from the, on the phone? Yeah, I don't know. Because um, none of the watches that you could interact with in the store when I went had 30-party apps on them. They just had first-party. 30-party. And um, they weren't tethered to phones. They were connected to the internet via Wi-Fi. Mm. Yeah, they don't. And real watches don't have Wi-Fi. Yeah, so it's... But I think they've got some sort of Wi-Fi-ish thing. Yeah, but I don't... I you don't can't just you, connect directly to Wi-Fi. You no, have to connect have to through the phone. Through the phone, yeah. So I don't really know what to expect. But I guess I was inspired enough from our episode with David to want to spend more time working on watch stuff. Yep. Um, I found the layout stuff actually after talking to him and him making that point that it's a lot like um, Swing's layout managers kind of just switched how I was thinking of things. And it's nice. Like I, I ended up making heavy use of groups. So basically the glance that I'm working on, um, there are two templates for a glance. Um, and I thought that that was it. And the template I had been trying to use had a top half, like a header group and then a main body group. And I was trying to lay out all my labels within those two groups yep. and couldn't figure out how to get things to appear where I wanted. And then I realized that you can nest groups within groups and then you can specify the size of any element, either that it should fit its content, so it'll expand to be as big as it needs to be to contain all of the content within it, or you can specify a size as a percentage of its parent. So you can say it should be 1.0 full width of its parent or 0.5 to be half the width of its parent. Mm -hmm. And you can specify for each group whether it should lay out its children horizontally or vertically. And so with that combination, you can kind of do almost any layout. You just kind of nest groups within groups and set their relative widths and then set them to either be vertically laying out their children or horizontally laying out their children. Kind of reminded, reminded me a little bit of like a HTML table layout where you have tables and tables and tables and tables. Oh, God. Do you remember that? <laughs> do, do I remember that? You, you're forgetting that I work with web. I yeah, have to do this. No every- one does tables anymore. It's, really? It's called it's called email templates. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Obviously touched the raw nerve. Yeah, that's, that's like asking a... Um, Asking a war veteran about you know that time that he got bombed. Mm. It, 
not not sorry. I should, probably shouldn't say that. That's that's probably making light of their situation. But you know, it, it's I've, I do have a little bit of post traumatic stress every time about I, tables. Yeah, yeah. I, I've far enough removed from them that I have a fondness, a fond nostalgia. I remember <laughs> tables. Speaking of fond nostalgia, oh wow. Um, we have some other fu follow up. Sorry, sorry, we haven't trademarked fu. We haven't licensed it. I don't think that's a thing. I think it is a thing. But anyway, <laughs> um, Scott M- McAllister. Uh, sent. We must have mentioned Code Warrior. I probably mentioned it, given that I'm, you know, waxing nostalgic about IDEs of the past. And then Scott McAllister sent us a photograph of a Code Warrior mug, and it took me right back. Hmm. Those were the days. That's awesome. Code Warrior merchandise. I used Code Warrior. There you go. I had no idea what I was doing. I would just like copy paste things in and hit. Run. I had no idea Nothing what I would was work, doing. And then I'd yeah. close it. But, you know, That's exactly what I did as well. That pretty much sounds like the way that I used Eclipse and that when I explained it <laughs> on the episode. Mm. And I was doing it on the old school iMac, you know, the the fully contained CRT one. Yep. Oh, wow. CRT. That's I was right. doing it on a PowerBook. Oh, yeah. PowerBook G3. I think I want to say G3. Okay. You can say G3. Anyway. Um, speaking of nostalgia, I'm reading the Steve Jobs book at the moment. The new, new one? The new one? Yeah, the new one. Becoming Steve Jobs. Becoming Steve Jobs. And what do you think? Uh, I'm only part of it. And it, but so far, do you think it's better, worse than um than the Walter the official Isaacson. Walter Isaac whatever his name is Isaacson? Thank you. I'm enjoying it more because it focuses less on Steve Jobs' personality and more on the history of his work. Oh yeah, that's and so. Sounds I'm kind of interested good. in in the work. I'm interested in Next and Pixar and. Apple, and I felt conflicted reading Walter Isaacson's biography, which focused a lot on his personality, because he seemed like a complete jerk, and I found it hard to reconcile my admiration of the things Apple and Steve Jobs were able to create, and the jerk that it sounded like he was from reading that book. And this book, focusing less on that, I feel less conflicted, and I'm finding the stuff it does deal with interesting. So, yeah, I'm enjoying it. Um, I've read heaps of others. There's like... um. I think there was one called, I'm a bit worried I'm going to get it wrong in a bad way. I think it was called West of Eden, which also could be the name of an adult film. <laughs> <laughs> which is why I'm worried. <laughs> anyway, one of wow. them is a book about Steve Jobs. Um, the second, and the yeah, The Second Coming of Steve Jobs. And that's another one, which deals with basically his time coming back from next to Apple. And I think think those are the only other two I've read. Um, so the story, I'm very familiar with that, with the story of Apple and then Next and Pixar and then Apple. And um, I think I think many, many tech Apple nerds are. Yeah. Uh, where was I going with Well, we were that? talking about WatchKit. No, yeah, I'd finished talking about WatchKit. I moved uh, on to follow up about the Code, Warrior. Uh, Code Warrior merchandise. Uh. Oh, and we also had some uh, feedback from Carl Sherman on Twitter. Thank you. Uh, to say that we were talking um, in a previous episode, I think the one before the David Smith one, about Assert in Swift. Yes. And I got it backwards. Mm-hmm. I was saying that Assert um, prints something when the argument is true and it's the opposite. Yeah. Yes, I do remember yes, that. which mm-hmm. makes sense. Yes. Yes, it does make sense. Yep. Because <laughs> usually the, the whole point of Assert, right, is that you're asserting that something is true and when it's not true, you want to... You want to throw like, alarms log, in the air. You want to, yeah, throw alarms in the air, which Launch is kind of... Launch the fireworks. Of, yeah, so that's the idea of having the thing that, you know, it prints a prints yeah. a line when you yeah. when it fails. So false. Yeah. Hmm. Here's a good topic. Asserts on or off for release code. So it shouldn't make any difference. So what will you choose then? <laughs> so NSLog... Like using NSLog in a in a shipping app, I don't. I guess it's probably different for Swift, which is why Jake's looking around like he's really confused. No, um, no, I'm trying to f- remember why I think that it doesn't make a difference. But using NSLog does slow down your app because it has to write a line to a a log a file, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. so theoretically, the same thing would happen with like what I guess print print ln is it in Swift? I can't remember. No, so line. that's different. This is asserts, not yeah, yeah not logs. So I, th- I think is, the reason is it I th- similar like does well, it? So I think the reason that um, and this is why assert uses auto closures in Objective C. I think the typical practice is to use if def macros. Yep. To only include your asserts in debug code. Yeah, or 
uh, to, or you basically use like a, set up a your own C level function to do that. Well, you can use NS Assert, which is the Apple provided one, which you can turn off with build settings. Yeah. So Swift doesn't have the pre-processor macros that C has. So you can't mm. do that. You can't have some code that sits there and in certain compilation scenarios is executed and others isn't executed. So the reason they did um, assert as a an auto-closure is that the body of the assert isn't evaluated until later. Well, it would be evaluated after after it's checked to see whether or not you're in debug mode or right. connected to a console. Yep. So I think that that's the thing, the bit that it actually um, gets into the implementation of a cert and only if you're in a debugging context does it look at the closure that you've passed into the assert statement Yeah. to see if that evaluates so, the true or false. Is that what you want, though? Do we want them turning off in release? Yes, I think so. I yeah. argue no. Oh, really? So why? Even though... The Apple practice was yes, but the, the so this is a hotly debated topic, by the way. But anyway, I fall on the assert should be on side because the point of an assert is it's meant to be used for this situation is impossible. So say you've got a huge switch case and you've covered all of the cases, and so you, and then you stick one at the bottom of default assert this is impossible, something's gone horribly wrong. So why would you want your app to continue? In an impossible case, when anything could happen, something horrible has gone wrong, anything could happen, you want to crash then. You don't want to crash later down the track when you've wiped the entire user's computer. That's a good because point. Because it, it's just gone crazy. Not that you can with mobile development, or at least not on a phone. You could wipe their, da- their database. You could be writing a cooking yeah. book app, and I've put in my 100,000th recipe Hit save and turns out I can only save nine hundred and ninety nine thousand, and I just wipe the whole thing. You could wipe their photos. No, you can't wipe their photos because every time you try to delete a photo, it pops up an oh, right. alert to actually ask them permission for confirmation for each individual. Yeah, and tweet. it shows them actual an actual oh, cool. copy of the the image. That's kind of nice. Hmm. Hmm. So unless I'm wrong, you can't just. Wipe their photos. Just willy-nilly wipe all their photos. But I think, Ben, your point is good, that um, if you're using asserts to draw attention to situations which should never happen, then leaving them on in production, I guess, makes sense. Yeah. But I think in practice, people use asserts for more than that. They kind of use it in place of um, design by contract. So there's an interesting episode of the Edge Cases podcast where they talk about design by contract. Mm-hmm. And I think I've come across it in other languages. It's a really nice idea where in your function or method, you can actually say what parameter, not just types, but like ranges. Like you could say this this parameter takes an int and it's got to be a positive number less than 10. Yeah. And you can actually express that as a contract that you can only call this if you pass it an integer that's a positive less than 10. Um, And in some languages, the compiler will actually check that for you. But I believe some people use asserts in lieu of having designed by contract language features where they just say, I'm going to have the first line of this method assert that the integer is a positive integer less than 10. And if it's not, I'm going to bail out. Yeah, so why wouldn't you want to crash then? So I think in dev, I think you do want to crash because you want to let the client of that API know that they're breaching the contract, that they're passing a parameter which isn't a valid value. But at runtime... You just broke the contract, anything could happen. Yeah, but you might want to be a little bit more graceful about it. Like, you might want to return an error that the higher-level code can get and then use to determine what sort of error message to display to the user. Yeah, that's for, yeah. like... Like, what if um it was user data that resulted in a call to this, this method and the users made a mistake and... Yeah, then you wouldn't use an assert. That's an exception or a, however else you want to code. It's definitely error, not an assert yeah. for user data. Yeah, okay. I think Ben's point of like if you're gonna if you're gonna, you know, bail out because you've reached a, an impossible situation, like you've covered off all your bases and now you've reached an impossible like the user should never have gotten here in the first place, um, so you crash. Crashing with an assert is probably a better solution than crashing later when you have yeah. no idea what's yeah. going on. Yeah. Uh because what you end up with, right, is that you end up with um you know, a crash log. And you you're looking at it and it's like what I have to like and you have to backtrace and yeah. it takes you hours and, and you could 
you eventually realize that it was actually this other code that's just, yep. you know, way up the line that you should never have gotten to the point that you did. You're both convincing me. Because what you'd end up with is many, like a greater frequency of the same crash rather than a whole number of related crashes that all stem from the same bug that end up existing right. in different places. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Have you guys read Pragmatic Programmer? Ages ago. I don't know that I have. That is the best book for programming in general. doesn't matter what language you program in. Like The concepts all apply. It's a C, C++ book, but it yeah. really doesn't matter. But yeah, one of their points is crash early, crash often. As long as you're programming pragmatically. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> but no, read, read that book if you haven't. We used to, at Shiny Things, you know, give it to the new interns. We had a copy. Read so this. I, I'm, I, I, my next book that I'm planning on reading is um, is one about uh, Cocos 2D that I heard <laughs> was really good. Uh, it's a it's an excellent primer for uh, for learning how to develop in yeah develop pre, games. pre pre reading for that book is pragmatic. Programmer. Oh, I see. Oh, right. I see. knowledge. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I'd email in with what other people do with the certs because I know everyone has an opinion on it. I've seen lots of people debating it before. I just wanted to put my opinion out there. Thank you. Do you have any opinions about testing? I do. I'm of the opinion, at least in iOS, that unit testing, everything, is a waste of time. Unit testing set pieces is pretty good. So you're importing code. So say you parse some JSON feed from the web, parse it into your data layer. That stuff, great for unit testing. Oh, good. I was, I was waiting to hear whether that was a good or bad idea because I've just written some unit tests to test JSON parsing. And it feels potentially useful, but also potentially like it mightn't be that useful. But you think it's worthwhile? I think it's worthwhile because it might not be broken at the moment, but later on you might change something and then the test will throw up that it's broken rather than you having to notice it weeks later. Yeah, I think that's... That's kind of one of the reasons that motivated me. And also, um, I actually found unit a unit test to be a more convenient way of testing out the API that was under development. So instead of having to write other code to call my JSON parsing somewhere else in the app and do something with the content so that I could see if it was right, I could just write a, little, a single function. And in Xcode, before the latest version where it broke, you could click on there was a little play button in the gutter next to a single unit test function and so you could yeah. just write your function as a self-contained thing and just hit the play button right next to that function and execute that function separately from anything else and i found that really like handy so i kind of got into a little bit of a like a doing test driven development i feel like i should do air quotes um where i'd write the test to say okay i'm going to request some json and i'm going to get back this thing and i'm going to make sure that it has the data i expect and then i'd run it and it would fail and i go okay, I've got a failing test, fantastic. And now I'll go and write the actual code to do that and then come back, run, oh, it passes, excellent. My JSON does have what I thought it would have. But it, it felt so kind of um, repetitive and obvious that I was wondering whether there was actually any value to these tests. Yeah, I I don't write any tests for my code. I probably should. I prob- Like, I understand the point of, you know, it makes things, like it picks up things that you would not normally pick up until later. And an excellent example of this is that GIFWrapped, uh, just the other day, had this random crash that was happening because I think of, yeah, because of a third-party library that, uh, or a third, third-party source of data that I've mentioned previously has broken the app, broke the app again. I'm not sure what happened because it went away. Like, it, it came and went went within, seemingly within a few hours, uh, and it was causing the app to crash. Probably could have picked that up, maybe possible but i don't run any so this is where i I find it challenging is to to what extent are my tests testing my app in isolation of everything else and to what extent uh, do i want to test my app in cooperation with everything else so this exact example you're talking about ben where you're testing some code that calls a network service gets back some json and passes it one of the things i want to test is that that network service i want to know if that service ever changes if at some point in the future yeah. it starts returning something different, I want to catch that as soon as possible. Yep. And it would be kind of nice to have unit tests that actually hit the real service. Um, and you can do that now because you can write asynchronous tests. It's pretty straightforward. The only downside is that they take a while to run. So Yeah, so they're more 
they're more end-to-end tests. As like integration called. tests. Or, yeah, yeah in- integration and end-to-end if you're testing the whole app. Yep. So your unit tests probably should be using a mocked server response. Yeah, you, the point so of them is you're trying to get into a habit of running them every time real fast. You know, every time I build like you were saying, locally. using them. Yeah, using them for development. Like you can just run that one test while you're developing that feature. Yeah, and you also want them to be automatable so that your build server, say that I don't know, the service is down, or your developers aren't suddenly getting build failed, build failed. For right, something that yeah. wasn't their fault at all. That would be kind of handy. So in terms of approaches, I guess one of the challenges there is how to make sure that your mocked network response is faithful to the real one. Yeah. And, you know, if the real one requires some sort of um, encryption or signed requests to get back responses, I, I like I feel like you, there's a lot of work involved in writing the mocked response so that it's a faithful reproduction of the real response. And I worry that what if I make a mistake in that and that I end up writing all my code to deal with a mocked response, which isn't a real representation of the, the real one. Yep. Then when I come to use the real network service, my code doesn't do what I expect it to do because I've been fooling it, myself all along. But is that the point of unit testing? Is the point of unit testing to make sure that everything is, uh, that all of your responses that you're getting from servers is, uh, is completely and utterly accurate? Wouldn't that be part of your integration testing or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. And also, you you use the example of your signed API that's all encrypted and all that. The unit test would probably be after that, or you'd have multiple unit tests. One right, to yeah, so I'd decrypt, have some code which yeah, and then one to get parse the JSON, like a just a, a dictionary, and then the yep. parsing code would deal with dictionaries. And so the mocked version would just exclude the network altogether and just return dictionaries. Yeah. Well, because I think the idea of unit testing, right, is to test a particular, well, I mean, a particular unit, that's obvious from the name, but like the the unit, the whole idea of unit testing is that you take a piece, like a small piece and just test that. So you're testing whether or not the JSON that you're providing is getting turned into the dictionary that you expect. The whole thing of, you know, am I getting the correct JSON from a server is kind of a separate part of that thing. Yeah. Okay. You're right. But NSJSON serialization will give me a dictionary with it seems so trivial as to do I need to test that bit. Whereas No, I don't I wouldn't of, test NSJSON serialization. I'd just use that. I'd just yeah. use it and then, you know, there wouldn't be a separate test for that one part. And also something I've done in the past is just copy pasting one of the responses, like a real response into a file, and then loading yeah. that in my unit test. Yeah. So there's um I had a look at some libraries. There's one thing I called, o, I think it's OCHTTP something or other, response, which I think what it does is uses a custom NSURL protocol to replace the default URL protocol for HTTP. So what you oh, can still cool. use your exact same code, like NSURL session or whatever. Um, and when it goes to actually make the request, instead of hitting the network and getting back, this library ends up being able to, satisfy the requests um, by like caching it or something or just by generating like you you set it up to tell it what it should ah. return for a given request yep. and you can specify what headers it should return and what data and so you can test all sorts like you know what does this do if it gets a four a 500 internal server error what does it do if it gets a 200 okay but the body instead of being json is html yeah and so you can have all of those different situations represented but again it just feels like so much work to kind of um set up all of those mocked responses um yeah it does i agree i'm I'm still not i'm just sounding really lazy here Uh, yeah that does kind of sound lazy but then (laughs) i don't write any tests at all so you know you're slightly less lazy than i am (laughs) there was a good presentation again um on realm at realm.io there's a presentation on testing with swift and they talk about a lot of this stuff about um different approaches that you can take um in that he the speaker whose name i forget i apologize advocates using an adapter pattern where basically um instead of yeah you you write your code with a layer of abstraction so you call your data provider and you ask it for data for a certain thing um and then you have two alternative implementations one which is the real one that uses you know something like an SURL session to hit the network and get it and one that actually just returns mocked up objects um and so that the clients of that you can test Right unit test, so you just switch out using this adapter pattern. 
um, which one is actually providing the data, whether it's a real thing that hits a network or a mocked up thing. And it seems sensible, those approaches. You could also, I feel like you could also just write your, if you're hitting the, the network for data anyway, surely you could have some form of caching involved. I mean, a lot of the time you don't have to get exactly the same. You have, don't have to get bang on new data every single time you mm. do a request. If you write a decent um, caching implementation, then you shouldn't have to worry too much about whether or not you're hitting the server or not. You're just relying on caching. And theoretically, if you wanted your tests to run fast but also uh, get the same result, you could kind of beef that up during your testing testing period and um, mm. you know, make it so that it hits at once but then thereafter always returns caching cache data, which feels like a good move anyway. For some things, some things you want data. You want new data all the time. Yeah, I think this comes back to my laziness slash naive approach to programming. Is I just generally start off with the simple approach of getting the real data and then add caching if it becomes necessary. Well, you get some amount of caching as For free, like as yeah. a given, yeah. right? Like as part of as part of the HTTP libraries. Yeah, I think uh, it depends on what sort of tar like. NSURL session has different methods for returning different tasks. If you ask for a data task, I think by default it doesn't cache because mm. I guess the idea is you want up-to-date data. Yeah, probably. But you can configure your NSURL session to have different caching policies. Yep. But what about other approaches to testing beyond unit testing? Yeah, so I've been playing with UI testing it recently because I wanted a way just to do a basic check of each build to say, I can at least open every tab or every screen in the app. Because I don't know if mm. you guys have ever done some update to an app, maybe not pushed it all the way to the store, but you've pushed it out to clients or something. And, you know, one of the screens just crashes and you didn't bother checking it because maybe it wasn't even the screen you were working on or something weird happened. But yeah, so I've been trying to solve that problem. Yeah, not necessarily the crashing uh, like directly on the screen, but I've definitely had stuff that where had I done some, you know, UI testing, I probably would have picked it up. And it did, it, like some of them did make it all the way out to the, to the App Store. Mm. I've had the crashing thing as well, where, yeah, you make a seemingly unrelated change and actually it changes a whole heap of stuff. Mm. So what's, um? how do I avoid that? Yeah, so I've been using a library called KIF, K-I-F. Um, uh, like and you can it, write... Keep it functional? I think so. Is Sounds right. Is a character from Futurama? There's Maybe. a character called KIF. There yeah. is a character from Futurama. He it does green. stand for keep it functional. Alien. Maybe his name stands for keep it functional. Maybe he is a functional test. That blows my mind. <laughs> so, so how do, I've heard of KIF, obviously, because I knew the acronym, but I um, haven't used it. How does it work? So KIF, you write basically the same as unit tests, but instead of checking the output of your method or something like that, it provides a whole pile of functions to check the output of the UI. So mm. the way it works is actually oh, by hooking cool. into the accessibility system. So nice. as a side note, you also have to make your app accessible for the unit testing to work or the integration testing to work. Which, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Which you probably should do anyway. Yeah. Just saying. Exactly. Exactly. So you, you hook into by saying tap button with accessibility label blah. And then the next line would be wait for item with accessibility label something. And so you can say the button is like the tab bar or something and you're waiting for the animation to finish and then the next page to load in and then whatever's appearing. So just that's like a basic one. And it will time out after however long you want. I think the default's 10 seconds. And if it times out, it fails. And there's a, it's, yeah. you write them as if you were doing it yourself. Like exactly how you would go through the app testing is how you write the unit tests, which is really, really cool. And the, the way I like it is it's just you just write a quick one and then from that point on, it's it's automated. So we've just set up a build server. And so every time we push, it goes through and taps, effectively taps through the app and makes sure every page loads. Or you might have a login. You could put text in the user field and the password field and hit login and see if it logs in. Think, things like that. Have either of you used like um like a monkey monkey testing? Is it? I don't know. Is there, is there like an actual name for that? Is this where you like just tap on everything? Like yeah, that's the throw the stuff right at the yeah. app one, right? Yeah, so the whole idea is, um, and I, I ran into this one recently. So I, when I shipped GIF wrapped 1.1, I went through and reset up my 
uh, UI automation stuff um, to take screenshots of the app, which is a lot easier when you do it with UI automation because we should it just talk happens. about that as well. Uh, and um, part of like one of the things that you can do with that same UI automation kind of stuff is set up what is essentially monkey testing, uh, which is you basically have set up all these random like taps and, uh, and and stuff all over the screen. And so it's just completely and utterly random like you would get if a monkey was, you know, just kind of blindly using the app. I, I have people to help me with that as well. Little people. <laughs> Don't, you shouldn't talk about Ben like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, meant, I meant children. Oh, my son's pretty good at um just randomly poking things on my screens. Yeah. So, but the idea is like, yeah, this is just a script that you set up that you run and you let it run, and it just blindly taps things. Oh, that would so crash all and, of my apps all of the time. Yeah, well, that's the whole idea. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm I too scared. It, <laughs> which is probably not a good position to be in, right? <laughs> um, I started to use you know UI Kit has got a a function a method that lets you disable user interaction across the whole app at a particular Yeah, point. I only discovered this really recently. It's cool. Really? Yeah, yeah. So you can use it, like, say, during transitions. Like, so say you've hit a UI element that causes, like, a whole thing, things to animate in and out. Mm. You might use this method to say, okay, disable interactions during this transition state because it just doesn't make any sense to be clicking on buttons that are fading out for example, and then as soon as your transition finishes, you enable everything else again. I think that that sort of testing would make me want to use that thing more. I would probably end up wanting to put it in everywhere because there are so many of those sorts of edge cases that, you know, you tap on one button, it triggers something, and no real user is going to tap something else until the thing finishes because yeah, but- like they're going to wait. But if you do tap everything else while like that thing's happening, it's going to crash. But if... <sighs> But what happens when a, a real user does want to do that? Like, so one of the things that they talk they talk about with animations and stuff is the whole idea of being able to, you know, a, a user should be able to interrupt. Should be it? able to interrupt an animation. So if you yeah. know, if they go, oh, I didn't mean to do that, they can close something. Yeah. No. So whatever. what I'm talking about is, say, for example, during the um, interactive pop gesture or its equivalent. So say you're executing some code to. Move. Well, your monkey testing isn't going to do, do an interactive pop, pop gesture because okay. it's just basically doing taps and very simple swipes. Yeah, the whole idea of monkey testing is to do is to do basic UI testing that uh, would kind of cover off what you usually get with user testing. So the whole point of user testing, right, is to test an app in a way that you not wouldn't necessarily have thought that it would have, yeah. you know, uh, it would be used. Because users do strange things. Users do to do, do strange things because they typically they don't have your okay, well this is the workflow that it's yeah. has, how it's supposed to work. Yeah. And any deviation from that is, you know, is bad and so yeah. that nobody's going to do that. Yeah, but people do because they, they they see that as like they they see that as the most straightforward way of doing what they want to do. Yeah, which probably if they are deviating from what you think is the main one, then you probably need to work on your app design. But anyway, if you know you get users that deviate slightly from various from you know the the things that you would do, and um, that's the whole idea of you know user testing. Get them to do things that you wouldn't that they you wouldn't necessarily think of. Yeah. And as a bonus, you can run this monkey testing, which would essentially do a lot of the same stuff and probably does more than a user would because you will pick up things like, for instance, I have been through now two rounds of beta testing with my app and it wasn't until I picked it up with a, from a crash report that I discovered that if you double-tapped a, a zooming view that zooms into a, a GIF when it had no content... It would crash the app. Why would you do that? Well, why would you do that? But people have done that. Yeah. yeah. And therefore, I've got crash reports for it. So, yeah. the whole idea of monkey testing is that you pick, pick up, up things. That sort of stuff. Yeah. You, yeah. And, I mean, obviously, and user testing, but, you know, they they are kind of complementary in yeah. many ways. So, the other sort of testing that I'm interested in and have been looking into a little bit is um, testing that your app behaves in a consistent way across a variety of devices and OS versions. And that's tricky. I hate Especially that. trying to automate that. So there are services, like Xamarin have one called Test Cloud, but it's ridiculously expensive. Like it's $12,000 a month. Oh, whoa. Jeez. 
Yeah, I think I think that's right. We should check. And basically what it is, is it runs the equivalent of what you've described, Ben, in your KIF tests. So automated UI tests where yeah. you can basically script it and say, like, launch the app. When the first screen loads, click on this button or tap on this button. When the next screen loads, tap on this button. Um, but it will do it over a variety of, like, say, Android and iOS and different OS versions and different real devices. So they actually use physical devices and they kind of provide you with a... Oh, right. Like a virtual, like remote desktop VNC kind of style. So you can that explains see the cost. what's running on the physical devices. Yeah. So you, there, are, there are similar things for um, email templates. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Where you send, it'll send a gazillion test emails to yeah, test to clients, various test clients, render it, and then show you the results. It and show you the results. Yeah. And there's, there's a thing called Litmus, which lets you preview it in various different viewers. Yeah. And you can hopefully determine what's wrong with it from an image. Mm. <laughs> Email tests. But yeah, I, th- I guess we'd be interested to hear what, uh, perhaps from listeners as well, if you've got automated testing across different devices, what you've used. Um, I think that there's more than just Xamarin's solution. There are a few others out there. Well, UI, UI testing can be done for iOS anyway with this UI automation stuff. Yep. I mean, that's the whole point of it really in the simulator right does it work on devices in the same way if you've got them connected via uh, i think you can run it on a run on devices yeah, yeah. It's so you, just, you could potentially just, have like use um it's just done through your profile like profiling so it's the same as when you do like memory leaking or whatever yeah. it's just a ui automation thing and in fact you can run it at the same time so that you can you know have it doing various ui tests and you can script it in such a way that you go okay uh, in this navigation bar, find the left bar icon and click it, and then you know wait a couple of seconds, and then you know yep. then tap this cell in the collection view, wait for ten seconds. So theoretically, you could have um a build server using like Xcode bots or whatever with uh one of every iOS device attached yep. physically by a lightning cable. Yep, and not just every device, but every device OS combination. So like an iPhone four 4S with you know all the supported OSs that your app's targeting on it, running a suite of automated UI tests every time you commit yep. a build. That would be expensive. I can see why um, Xamarin's Test Cloud is $12,000 a month, because it would probably be cheaper than getting all of those devices and keeping them... Especially if you're doing it fairly regularly. Mm. So And with Xamarin. I watched a talk from the Facebook conference, and that's exactly what they have, except on a just ridiculously large scale. Mm. They've basically built these custom racks of Mac minis with devices plugged into them for that exact reason. And they have a whole so, server room of Mac minis, basically, just for testing. So how what do they do if one of their devices with an old OS dies? How do they replace it? I have no idea. Because you can't go and get a new one and install the old OS on it. They must just have, Facebook like, probably can. Yeah, probably. They're very clever. <laughs> yeah. That talk, which we'll put a link to the show notes, was just a ridiculous level of testing or scale of testing that Facebook are doing. It was just amazing. I've seen videos on YouTube of a bunch of devices doing various amounts of UI testing uh, and have been have been filmed doing it. It's it's nuts to look at because it's mm. just like they're all, all these of... devices just running themselves like ghosts. It's nuts. It's Something nuts. Kind of freaky. Another thing from that talk which I found was really interesting was they have so many developers basically working in the same repo that they end up with Git in like race conditions where you go, you pull in the latest changes and then you hit push to try and get yours up there, but someone beat you to it. So you go, damn. And then you pull again and then you go push. Ah, oh, someone beat me again. Wow. Jeez. So Git doesn't have so an atomic had to... command, which is a pull push. Yeah. So they're working on a custom version of Mercurial, open source, of course. Yeah. But in the meantime, they've moved the pull push bit into their own server so developers can just push always can push and then a server goes and puts them all together and then we'll push it back if it the merge failed or something like that gosh but it was just like such an interesting problem with the scale they're at yeah you don't even think of these things so they probably don't use storyboards then i doubt it i know they don't even use project files so uh given that they have react i'm gonna go with no they don't well react is just it's not in the actual facebook app no but it's a library that they that they like the 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 ob- like it's obvious to me that they are using they're not using like uh, UI you know like storyboards and stuff for the UI because they're obviously thinking about ways of making it you know programmatic mm. as opposed to visual which I'm perfectly fine yep. with but uh, like yeah I don't you know I don't think they would be using on the scale that they would be 
storyboards, that would be somewhat of a nightmare. Yeah, I can imagine. I find even just merging a storyboard with two people working on the one storyboard is problematic at times. Yeah, at least it's gotten better. It has gotten better. I don't use. I don't have that problem. A, I don't have two people. B, I don't have storyboards. <laughs> you dub- doubly don't have that problem. <laughs> Solving it on all the levels. Cool. So is there any other testing stuff, Ben, that you reckon we should look at? Not that I can think of that I've done yet. I'm definitely just still a newbie at all of this stuff, but everything I learn is kind of like, oh, why haven't I done this sooner? Yeah. So I'm just dipping my toes. But if I find anything else, I'll report back. I'd love to hear what other people are doing, like the level of testing they go to with their apps. Yeah. Yeah, if you if anybody wants to uh, send us in an email with, hey, you're doing your unit testing, that would be awesome. Hmm. I mean, I I need to actually sit down and figure out how to do like unit testing. So and one of the things this uh, presenter at the Realm presentation the other day mentioned was uh, tests now are included in every Xcode project. There's no option. Yeah, I know there. I know New that. Project, yeah. You just get tests. I know that. But what you'll find is that I have removed them. <laughs> Because I don't like extraneous things. Well, that's actually good. I I don't like extraneous things. So I don't like extraneous I, things I, I in my projects. Craft. And if I'm not going to use, do you delete all the app delegate methods and the view controller methods that are put in the templates that you know, yeah. and only put them back in when you actually need to? Yeah, yeah. And all the it's kind of the amazing they're in the templates. Stuff. Yeah. Well, you can you can Change. swap out your yeah. templates. That's not a problem. But yeah, I, I I plan on learning how to put x uh, put uh, unit tests back into my like my libraries because cool. I need to learn how to test them and I figured that's probably the easiest way to pick it up but I still yeah I'm not gonna I'm not gonna become like this crazy test driven development guy that seems crazy crazy I, I the bit about test driven development I like is the bit about thinking about the interface to your code before you think about the implementation I do that already yeah okay. I, we've talked about that yeah, like we've we talked about that before like I I don't write APIs by just blindly. I figure out what I'm planning to do and then write blank methods. And then, you know, if that, I'm all, I'm constantly thinking about it. Yeah. Unit tests for me would only be to pick up on, you know, slight, you know, miscalculations that I've made or Mm. problems that I've encountered, which, you know, is, is an acceptable use for them. I I think anybody who is against unit testing, that is, that would be why you need, you, you shouldn't be relying on just your tests in order to structure your thinking. structure your thinking, you should yeah. be structuring your thinking and then having unit tests to you know catch yeah. you when you're wrong. Yeah. What about though, Jelly? While you're developing this new feature that is well isolated, where do you run it from? Do you do what I used to do and just chuck a line in the app delegate? Like you just make the object you've been working on and then log it. It depends. Um, it depends on what I'm writing. So I've written what like three, four libraries now that i have open sourced and just make use of in uh in various apps so there's um the most recent the one and one we've actually talked about is uh static tables which is a like a, a library for creating table views uh based on like a static set of data mm-hmm. um that you can also you know make somewhat dynamic <sighs> every time i mention this i feel so bad about the name, <laughs> name. uh <laughs> But when I wrote that, right, I had an original, like there was an original version that I had in GIF wrapped um, and made use of. And I took that and I basically kind of using it as a reference point, uh, like you would if you were doing an illustration based off a photograph. Using it as a reference point, I kind of laid out my, first of all, laid out my classes. Okay, well, I'm going to need a class for my sections. I'm going to need a class for my rows. I'm going to need a class for my actual, you know, data source. And once I've done that, then I can start to lay out my methods Okay, I'm going to need for a for a data source. I'm going to want methods that I can you know manipulate my sections with. So add a section, remove a section, get my sections, etc. So are you running this code at the time? No, in because between it does nothing. All of these things. No, at the time at this so you're just at this kind point of it does all nothing. Of this stuff without having run it's it. It's not actually doing anything. All yep. I'm doing is first of all I create my class files. Yeah. Right, and then I go through each class file, and then I'm creating. I'm just writing blank methods. They're just a, the name of a method with a blank does nothing that yep. returns nothing. Yeah. Uh, unless it has to return something, in which case it'll be like nil or zero or yep. whatever. Until I've nailed that, so you know, for for static tables, it was things like um, you know, uh, managing my sections, and then in my section class, managing my rows. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, maybe I'll you know, maybe it'd actually be useful to be able to manage my rows from my 
data source. So manage, so you know, add also add methods to uh, you know, manage my rows. Yeah, based on what section they're in, and then you know, all the way down. So I'm I'm just creating all these methods that do nothing. They do nothing, zero, anything. Yeah, and then as I go through, then I just start to write out each of these methods because at this point, all I need really is to be able to write the things that I know at the, like I know how most of this is going to work, right? Mm. If I'm going to remove a road, then I kind of mostly know what I'm, what I've got to do to get it, to get it running. I can write that without ever having, ha- having to run it. So I could technically write See, an entire I, I would have run it 10 times by then. I no. would have like run it. I would have written the empty method that returns zero for number of sections and run it and checked that it worked. And I had a table with zero sections and then I would have changed it to one section and then run it again. And I would have written the, a method to return the number of rows and just hard-coded 10. Gone. Does it have 10 rows? Yes. Excellent. And then... Um, that sounds really long. Yeah. Maybe. So I, I just, don't trust myself. So I wrote it. If I write then, more than one line of code, i got to run it to make sure it's working properly. So, But then I just <laughs> kind of... Like, I can figure out how to, you know, add a row, remove a row, get it, get the selection of rows. Yeah. As long as I have a basic, basic long, working thing. How long thing. are we talking uh, you spend writing before you run? Not, not very long. Maybe... Maybe a, day. a day or two, like the a day or two, a, day, a day or two. two. Well, I, I don't wow. need so to run. Like I, you would do only add because I don't, only and because remove I, like, at the same time. What you would do? Add a row, remove a row, move a row before running. Yeah, yeah. Wow. wow. Okay. So you would have done well in the day of punch cards. I would not. So I just I would write I would write it until I I, I think it's actually going to work. At which point, then I will write. Usually, write. So for I mean. Static Tables has an example app. Yeah. The example app was built because I needed to run it. Yeah. Yeah. And the benefit of that is that there is an example app. Yeah, which is cool. So uh, once I had that, I then basically yeah. wrote some examples. So one of the examples in the example app is that you have a row, a, a section of groups which have names, like yeah. people names. Yeah. I think there's like manager and staff and clients or something like that. And yeah. you can tap to have them move between sections yeah um and so i basically set it up so that if you tapped it it would remove it okay that seems to work if i tap it now if it should you know i should be able to also add and i could get it to generate you know a random name and i could you know then once i've got that i've you know all it takes is okay now i've got to move it Mm -hmm. and so you know i just build i build these apps out until i've i feel like that it's actually you know working and then i had to do some other things so there was another Another part of static tables is that it has like uh, preference rows that allow you to create um, preferences for your app based on you know the data type that they are. Yeah, cool. So like a boolean, yeah. um, and that gives you a row that you can have apply a label to and a description to and, and, a, switch. A, and a and a little toggle. Yeah, nice. Uh, or like a um, one of the more complex ones is a select box, which basically has a label, but then. A, 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 like it might have a default value and then you can tap it and it will open up another table view with a selection of options that you can then select one and then it will cool. go back and yeah. you know show the selected value so but i i mean i write all of this and then i just kind of once i actually get to the point that i'm actually you know using it i can you know all i had to do was build the actual table stuff first and then i can start to add you know the complex stuff it's it's just like we were you were saying at the very beginning right you start with the most naive approach yeah i wrote the most naive approach which is just you know a way to manage static tables and then built on it from there and once i've once i've got that naive approach then i can start to run it but there's no point running it just to get you know to determine whether or not i can get a number of rows yeah what about run building stuff? it though how often do you I'd, click build build uh, yeah build Fairly re- fairly regularly. Okay, yeah. It's just it's, command it's, I, I was just thinking yeah. I would get to the end of three days and hit build and just have a thousand syntax errors. Yeah, same. This is reminding of my, me of uni when I had to like do COBOL assignments and they didn't give us a COBOL compiler. They're just like, it doesn't matter. You don't need a compiler. Just write it down. <laughs> what? And then submit your assignment. We'll run it on, on our COBOL machine. The thing is- We'll tell you, you if it worked. I- come from writing php i still write php daily the only you can way you run that yeah the only way you can run that is by refreshing the page over and over and over and over and over and over again which is essentially the same same concept as you know building and running your app except building and running your app takes a lot longer than refreshing yeah, a page yeah yeah and so I've, i wish it was as quick as refreshing a page. I've, unit tests can be as quick as refreshing yeah, a page. i i've gotten to the point i i guess i have gotten to the point where i and we probably should really end after this I've gotten to the point where I don't necessarily like 
I can kind of I can kind of write something without having to think about whether or not it's going to work because I know the general idea of how it's supposed to work and mm. can write that. I, I don't like I don't understand how I can put myself in the code's shoes and do they wear does code wear shoes? Yeah, blue suede shoes. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh okay. So I can like I can kind of think through the code logically and I think it'll most of the time I think it'll work. And then usually the thing that pulls me up is just stupid stuff. Like, oh, you know, I I sometimes can receive a nil here and I probably don't want that. Um so I probably should, you know, make a check for that. But I mean most of the time I, I pick that up as part of my as uh, part of my test. I was gonna say all use Swift with an optional. <laughs> you make compiler will make So it just gonna point this out. Static tables was written before Swift was a thing. Yeah, I know. I was just being, you know Facetious. Yeah. Mm. A pain. You you were good at that. But also in more seriousness, this is one of the things I like about playgrounds. And um I actually found myself writing unit tests because I couldn't get playgrounds to work properly. So I like the with playgrounds, you can interactively develop your code. Like you don't there's no separate running your code from writing your code. The act of writing your code causes it to run. So every yep. time you write a new character, it executes the line again that you're on. And in the gutter on the right-hand side, you see the result of the line you're working on. Yeah, And it gives you instant feedback, it gives me instant feedback about when I've made a stupid mistake. So like I, I do something, I assign it to a variable, and I think I'm getting a string back. And then I look in the gutter and it's like, oh, no, I'm not getting that back. I'm getting something else back instead because it's showing me exactly what it is. And where I'm exploring an API, even it's where it's one that I think I'm familiar with, like I was doing some stuff with NS date formatted the other day, um, it's really handy for getting that feedback straight away. Like as I'm typing it, I can look over and see the behavior of the code. Like I don't have to trust my memory of the API or I don't have to trust my understanding of the documentation and thinking about what that will actually mean when I apply it to the data I know I'm going to be dealing with. I can actually just type the line and you know it's got some data and i can see what it does and then i can go that's cool um and what i was working on was a ios 8 framework that had a dependency on another framework external and i don't know that there's a good way in playgrounds to there isn't add dependencies to frameworks there is a way of adding dependencies to frameworks but, but it's, it's not hack. straightforward yeah. it's a hack whereas with um unit tests they work. So your unit test runs in the context of your app, which already has a dependency to the framework. So I could basically get an approximation of the same thing. I couldn't get it every time I typed a character, but I could write a you know discrete set of like four or five lines of code that would exercise this particular API and just run that over and over again as I make changes. Yeah, because a unit test is designed to be able to run a single method and just basically you know validate its out its output. Yeah. So I found that a really handy way of sort of interactively developing the code. So rather than having to go and do all of the thinking up front and write it all down and then run it to test whether my thinking was right, I can kind of do a tighter loop. I can go, what do I think it will be? Uh, Probably this. Is it? No. Okay. Is it this? Oh, yeah. Okay. What's the next thing? Anyway. I'm sure that everybody out there in listener land is probably pulling their hair out thinking, holy dang. These what, people are these, crazy. These people are idiots. Why am I listening <laughs> yeah, to them? Definitely. I think testing's like that. Such a like hotly debated and opinionated topic. <laughs> yep. There was a discussion of testing on the most recent core intuition as well. We should put a link to that. Okay. Yeah. I think we probably should wrap up though. So that all these people that are screaming their heads off and pulling out their hair can send us an email. But first, you should go and check out the show notes. Uh, the show notes will be on the website. They are mobilecouch.co forward slash 55. Uh, if you would like to send us an email and tell us how incredibly stupid we are, <laughs> you can do that. You you have you have the power to tell us and you know what we will listen because that's what we're like we listen most of the time and uh you can do that by jumping onto the website it is mobilecouch.co forward slash contact or you can send us an email the old school way and uh that will be that is through you know email not like not like the old old school way which is like snail mail cuz I mean, we probably won't get that before the next episode, but anyway, 
You can send us, send us an email to hello at mobilecouch.co. You could send us snail mail. That would be kind of cool. Do you want to give your address That would be out? cool. Do you remember when you, if you used to do shareware and it was like postcardware? Send, send me a postcard from your part of the world and I'll give you a license to my software. You don't remember? I do remember so, that. I'm, I'm so old. <laughs> ben said he remembers. I'm going to edit out the Ben who said he remembers so that you can just have this moment where you say you're so old. Yeah, because I am. If you would like to get in touch with us individually, you can talk to Jake and you can tell him anything. You can send him a postcard and he'll give you a license to his shareware. Uh, he's on Twitter. That's J McMullen, J M A C M U W L I N. Ben is also on Twitter. You can thank him for being the reasonable one, uh, in regards to testing. And he is Ben Trengrove, B E N T R E N G R O V E. And, uh, you can all block me. I am jelly <laughs> bean soup. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you guys for listening. I hope that uh, we haven't frustrated you too much with our talking about testing. Hey, the episodes where you you yell at the radio are the best. I mean, hang on. Am I old? The transistor radio. The pod catcher. Okay. I'm going to stop. Yep. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We look forward to talking to you again in two more weeks' time. We will see you then. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>